you know, rising up to fight back, and then the ramifications of what happens when citizens take the law into their own hands. Um, but I think, you know, so much of what transpires in the film um, happened because I, I was there for so long. You know, I wasn't there for two or three or four days. I didn't just parachute in or out. Um, you for know, how long have you been? I was there for about nine months, uh, uh, on the Mexican side at least. Um, one to two weeks of every month, developing, you know, deep, deep relationships um, with people on all different sides of this this conflict. And, you know, that scene uh, in the third act of the film, the scene uh, where we get shot at and then sort of fall out of the car and then it leads to this sort of witch hunt through the city and then they steal the father away from the crying uh, daughter and then the interrogation in the back of the car and then the, the torture. You know, that scene never would have happened if I just sort of walked up to them and, and knocked on their door and said, hey, can I hang out with you for a day? Um, you know, that was eight months into filming. Uh, the day previous, um, two of their members had been assassinated. Uh, guys in mopeds drove up and, and shot them in the head. And so the anger was palpable. The, the um, you know, they were just, you could feel this, this energy in the air. And I saw them jamming magazines into their guns and putting their, their bulletproof vests on. And I asked them, um, and I, I actually barely speak Spanish, um, but in my, in my broken Spanish, I asked them, you know, where are you guys going? And they said, oh, we're going to go get some Starbucks. And I said, okay, well, I'll go get some coffee with you too. And we, we literally and figuratively weren't speaking the same language. But, you know, we had, we had this relationship with this rapport that we had, had created over months. And so they knew something was about to happen. I knew something was about to happen. I just didn't know what it was. Um, and, again, that's an example of just having you know, deep, deep relationships. So. Yeah, and, and with Dr. Mireles, too, because when he's fleeing, when he wants nobody to know where he is, when he's seeing his girlfriend for the last time, you were there. Yeah, for, for better or for worse. I mean, it, that's what was so complicated uh, from a sort of directing and producing point of view is, you know, we were going to hiding with him as he was being hunted by the government, as he was being hunted by his own men, as he was being hunted by the, by the cartel. And, you know, four hours later, I was with the other side, with the government, with Papa Smurf, with El Gordo, as they put on their, their uniforms. So... Is a very, very sort of scary and, and delicate sort of tightrope walk, um, especially at the end when, you know, the lines between good and evil were so blurry. Yeah. Professor Barber, the bigger picture, what did you see? Well, I want to ask you a question first Go ahead. before we come to that, because the parallelism of the story on the U.S. border with our vigilantes and the story in southern Mexico, how did you conceive of that? I mean, do you see this? They're both vigilantes of a kind, so in that sense, that's obvious. But beyond that, there's so many differences. How did you come to that and handle that? So, um, you know, often when you create a sort of parallel structure in, in anything, in a, in a story, in a film, in a book, um, you know, people often sort of ex often expect that to be like a mirror image of each other. And, and, and clearly, in, in this case, it's not. Um, you know, at its heart of this film are these two men, El Doctor and Naylor. They're both 55 years old. They both believe that the government's failed them. They both have, you know, taken the law into their own hands to fight for what they believe in. 
Um, but the circumstances are, are quite, quite different. In Mexico, the violence is, is visceral, it's real, it's palpable. Uh, 100,000 plus people killed since 2007. Uh, 25,000 plus people disappeared since 2007. Those are, you know, astounding numbers. Um, and numbers are often numbing, but um, whereas in Arizona and the U.S., as you know, you know, that violence is not happening. And so Naylor's fight on the U.S. side is much more of a sort of theoretical fight, much more of a fear that these Mexican drug wars will, will seep their way across our border. To what extent... Uh was Naylor, you focused on the drug thing. Is he, was he just focused on that, or did he also want to stop Mexicans in general thinking that they're always going to be bringing drugs? To what extent is he Donald Trump, and to what extent is he really focused on, on, on drugs, and that was his special cause? Well, I think he says it in, in, in the first act of the film. He says, you know, I, I originally went down to the, to the border to stop illegal immigrants from coming across, and then I realized that the real enemy was the cartel, and so I shifted my focus. But obviously within his group, we see a, a, a diverse array of, of motivations uh, from the, um, you know, gentleman who says, you know, two pit bulls, we, we can't put two pit bulls in the same pen, you know, which is obviously sort of overtly and, and disgusting racism, um, you know, to people, uh, you know, obviously a, a a different range of, of, of motivations that we see on, on the U.S. side and on, on the Mexican side as well. And I think that's actually one of the parallels. Um, and that's ultimately what leads to the downfall of the auto defenses is, is this, um, you know, these conflicting motivations. You know, some people are fighting for their family. Some people are fighting for uh, their town and, 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 and to rid the state of the Knights Templar. Some people are fighting to take control of the meth labs. Some people are fighting for money and girls and power and guns and so, you know, I think obviously it's a, on one level it's a character portrait of these two men, but it's also an examination of movements like this. Uh, and, you know, it's, this is sort of an age old story of, of what happens when government institutions fail. Uh, what happens when there's an absolute failure of institutions where, you know, the, the very things that we take for granted here or in the U.S. Um, aren't there, and, and, and the police are either, you know, either overtly working with the cartel or paid by the cartel, um, especially at the local level. Well, that's, uh, that's, and that does take us to the next level, because the common thread, and you said, maybe not altogether appropriately, here in the U.S., it's not a problem that way, because the problem of, that's a new phrase, failed states, and we know that Libya and maybe Iraq and Syria are failed states, People are beginning to think that narco states like Colombia or Mexico are failed states. But I think the populist right movements in Europe and America are kind of assuming we have failed states too. A lot of the Republican, uh, Republican nominees are acting as if Washington and the U.S. government is a failed state and just don't get it done anywhere. And a number of people say in Brussels, uh, the police there haven't been able to do the sort of thing that would prevent ISIS from doing what they've done. There's a sense of failed state. So the notion that somehow the state, the sovereign state, which guarantees, I think uh, Naylor says at the beginning, is supposed to guarantee our property and our life and our liberty, is failing to do that. And people here are beginning to feel that way too with respect, whether it's to uh, crime and drugs or more directly with terrorism. 
people in Paris were not protected by the French state from a terrorist attack. They will say it's a complicated world and there's all sorts of good reasons for that, including civil liberties, but the reality is the failed state increasingly is becoming a trophy, a meme, people like to say, an idea uh, that's beginning to possess how we think and infect our politics. So, you know, one way is to be resistant, to be populist, to get a new state, get a new government, but another is to begin to say, let's do it ourselves. Let's auto-defense, whether it's American vigilantes. We saw it in the film right before this, a film about neo-Nazis uh, in, in North Dakota, who also talked about a state that isn't protecting white people, you know, isn't protecting the traditional white people. So I think the failed state motive that you look at so carefully here in the Mexican and the narco state context, but is also there a little bit, because he said it too, Mailer said too, they're not doing it, the border guards aren't doing it. The state's not doing it, so we have to do it. And then, of course, you see the consequences, you say, when once law and order breaks down, once there is no state, even good people trying to defend themselves get into a lot of trouble and a lot of chaos very quickly. And, and why exactly uh, do you think that is? Of course, there's many elements. There's the cartels infiltrating. There's the corrupt government. But there's also, I think, at, at the core, the problem of the lack of accountability of such a vigilante movement. There's this one old man in the village square who, who cries out, when we don't, when we, when we lose our trust in, in the official institution, institutions, we're done as citizens. Well, you know, for 400 years, the nation state was based on the idea that everything you cared about your life, your liberty, your economy, your jobs, your, your security came at a jurisdictional level of the state. France took care of the French, Holland took care of the Dutch, the US took care of our citizens and so forth. Mexican government took care of Mexico cities. But we live in an interdependent world where every challenge we face is global, is a challenge without borders. I mean, narco state is obvious. The state can't control crime. Terrorism is obvious. The state can't control terrorism. But now think of a much more gentle but urgent issue, climate change. We're coming to COP21 next month. Think of that, COP21. That means for 20 years, nation states have met every year and completely failed to do anything about the most urgent catastrophe facing us. You might say that every state in the world is a failed state with respect to climate change because we've done absolutely nothing and a lot of citizens are feeling we've got to do something. I have a movement around cities. Cities should start acting on climate change. Civic movements, people act on it in the same way that the folks in the southern part of Mexico said, someone's got to do something about drugs. The state doesn't, we will. But what about climate change? What are states doing about climate change which threatens every man, woman, child in the world with no, so we might say in an interdependent world of global challenges, Nation states based on sovereignty and borders simply don't work. And the borders separating the US from Mexico uh, are permeable, but so are the borders when it comes to climate change. There's no Dutch warming, there's no European warming, it's global warming, it's global climate change, and our nation states don't do it. So the problem in part is that we live in a 21st century era of interdependence where all the challenges from drugs and crime to climate change are global, and the states are still territorial, local, bordered, and don't get the job done. So, so in one of the solutions you come up with in, in, in your latest book, if, if mayors rule the world, and we will discuss that extensively tomorrow when we see the Chinese mayor, is 
citizens organizing on a local level, democracy on a local level. But that's exactly, in fact, what is happening there with the auto defensas. How do you see that, Matthew? What is the main reason why the auto defensas also derailed? Is there a human? Uh, there's so many reasons why they derailed. I mean, I think, um, to me, the beginning of the end is when the doctor got into the plane crash. You know, in many ways, he was the glue holding this movement together. Um, but, you know, perhaps it, it, it failed when it began. You know, I think one of the questions that we constantly were asking, and I was constantly asking, um, every day, every night, every moment we were in the car, you know, anytime we were, we were chatting as a team is, was, what's the end game? How is this going to end? You know, what's, let's say they do get rid of the Knights Templar cartel out of the state of Michoacan, which they did. Um, what's the happy ending? You know, what's, what's a sustainable solution here? And, and they didn't, like many social movements, there was no sustainable solution. Um, you know, the, the, the doctor, um, to the end, and, and, and hence why he got kicked out of the movement and, and, and largely why he's in prison, is he failed to fall in line with the government. He, he believed that the government uh, was a failed state, that the government had failed to protect the people of Mitchell Khan for, for years. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's many, many reasons. That, you know, I think another thing that happened, obviously, that we see very clearly is, is after the doctor got in the plane crash, there was this fight for power. And you know many many different leaders vying for for power for for money for um, for territory and 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 sort of that hubris and that uh, led to the, the fracturing within the movement and then also what we see is is the government coming in to infiltrate the movement mm -hmm. and as the doctor said use the old Roman concept of divide and conquer. Talk, talk about there's no sustainable model for a social movement. Well, here, here's the thing. It, it, permit me, forgive me for a very short lesson in political theory, which <laughs> lays behind all this. You know, the theory of the state in the 16th and 17th century and of the social contract is that human beings without the state live in a state of nature. Thomas Hobbes, the great English theorist, talked about the state of nature as a war of all against all. And there's no liberty, there's no life, people get killed. So they form a state. They put their trust in a government. The government puts its trust in them. They form a social contract. And the government then guarantees their lives and liberties. And we've lived under states for a long time. But when the state fails to do what it's supposed to do, guarantee the life and liberty, and people take things back in their own hands, one definition of that is, is, is vigilantism or direct democracy. Another definition is going back to the state of nature. And in a certain sense, what happens when they take it up themselves, it's back in the state of nature. And as Hobbes says, in the state of nature, life is nasty, brutish, and short because the currency of the state of nature, nature is force. And that's so force, they, they formed the auto defensa in order to protect themselves against the criminals, but the criminals actually were even better off there where they could corrupt people and use their force than they were with the state that they had infiltrated and corrupted. So the problem is, I think the only alternative we have is to make the state work, not to think we can somehow go back to the state of nature and one by one protect ourselves because life in Mexico, life in uh, Medellin under the cartels there, it's changed now, but was nasty, brutish and short and, and infinitely open to the kind of corruption and disintegration that despite a few good men and a few honest people, can't withstand that. We organize 
lawful states to do this thing right, and when they fail, we're back in the state of nature. That, I mean, I think to me, you touched on it in the beginning is, is, is the scene when Papa Smurf loses the crowd. Um, and you know, there's, there's the man in the crowd that we call him Charlie Rose. Do you know, do you know what Charlie Rose is? Anyone? He's a, he's a um, famous interviewer in, in, in the States. Uh, and so he, we call, we call this man Charlie Rose because he asked all the questions of, that we wanted to ask, you know, but you know, in a verite film, we don't, you can't ask those questions. How much did you pay him to do that? We paid him, we, 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 uh, we, we got a casting agent and got a nice actor to, to go sit in the audience and the whole cast was fantastic. Wrote, wrote some good questions for him. No, 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 but he, you know, but I think the irony of, of, of all of his questions of, um, that's why we have the Marines, that we have, that's why we have the state, that's why we have the government, you know, who, who, what power do you have to, you know, there's so much irony and depth in those, in those statements uh, because the fact is the Marines, the police, the federales, the government had failed them. And so to, to say that's why we have these institutions, um, you know, that's the whole reason why the auto defenses rose up. The, the, in, the first, in the beginning of the film, in the scene when the um, government surrounds the auto defenses, disarms them, and then the citizens surround the army and kick the army out, there's a beautiful young woman screaming face to face with, with the army. And you know, she, she was a, in, in a longer cut of this film, she was a bigger character. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't keep her in. But she, you know, her anger was because her, her whole family had been killed by the cartel. Both of her parents, both of her brothers, and she was too scared to go to the police. She was too scared that the police were the cartel, were being paid by the cartel, uh, would rat her out to the cartel. And so we are some of the first people she ever told. And so that anger, when she's screaming at the army, that anger comes from a place of, of again, just a failure of institutions. Do you see when Americans, Republicans, Tea Party say, close down the government, we don't trust Congress, we don't trust the president, he's not working for us. Is, does that, is that resonant of what some of the people in, uh, in Mexico are saying? Do you hear some of the same voices or even what our nailer is saying on the border, that you can't trust these guys, they don't do it, they don't deliver? Yeah, I mean, there's definite, definite um, commonality in, in, in the sort of ideology and the, the, th the thinking between those two groups. Um, you know, I think on the U.S. side, they look down at the auto defenses and say, wow, these, these guys are heroes. Kick some ass. You know, kick, kick some ass, as Naylor says. Um, whereas, you know, the auto defenses would look at Naylor and them and think they're a bunch of racists. Um, yeah. Anybody in the audience, please, over there on the corner. Dr. Mireles and uh, Naylor, how do they f how do they start it? How did they finance their activities? Where did the money come from? Um, for the guns and for all their materials, it seems expensive. Why do you, do you want to fund them? No. Oh. Um, so Naylor and, and his uh, group. They put a lot of them, you know, Naylor especially puts a lot of his own money in himself. Um, they get some donations from individuals around the country. Um, the auto defenses is a whole nother story. You know, I think that's, that's one of the big questions that, that immediately you start to question when you get down there. Where are these guns coming from? Where are these trucks coming from? Where are these bulletproof vests coming from? Um, who's funding this? And 
you know, the answer is complicated. Um, some of the money, again, comes from people within the community who don't want the Templar there anymore. Some comes from sort of uh, ranch owners, lime owners, you know, uh, who have been forced to leave and want to come back to their ranches, and so they're sending money in from other states in Mexico. Um, Michoacan is an incredibly resource-rich area. If, if you go to New York City or go to anywhere in the United States and you have a mojito or a drink, the lime is most likely coming from Michoacan. If you have a taco, the avocado is most likely coming from Michoacan. If you do meth, the meth is most likely coming from Michoacan. So um, it's a really resource-rich area, and that's why a lot of the business owners you know, wanted to get rid of the Templars, was to go back to their businesses. And then clearly, as we see in the end of the film, uh, you know, there were other um, criminal entities that wanted, that were funding this movement to take over the, the labs, to take over the, the drug um, cultivation and, and exportation. So, um, you know, in the end, the sad truth was, you know, the, the cartels, the auto defenses, and the government uh, were all, in some sense, the same in the end. And don't forget, don't forget that in North America, the gun culture, you can go to Walmart with $900 and come home with four assault rifles and some ammunition. So this isn't, it doesn't, you don't have to be rich uh, to equip a little, uh, you know, border patrol like these guys have. Yeah, and a lot of actually the money in, you know, the, I mean, they were literally, for the auto defenses, they were holding, like, bake sales and other things in, in California. They're, you know, sending money and guns southward uh, for the auto defenses. Any other questions? Over here. Sorry? Oh, okay. First of all, thank you for the moving. I was just wondering, Naylor, if he kills a Mexican on U.S. territory, what will happen with him legally? They run for president. <laughs> <laughs> it's being recorded, Professor Barber. Is this being recorded? Yes. yes. Um, he would, I mean, depends how he kills him. Uh, I, I mean, I don't... No self-defense. If it's not in self-defense, he, self he would go to jail. Okay, okay. You didn't comment on the border guard, but you didn't do, do a scene yeah, with the border guard, because the border guard doesn't like these guys, right? They, they're not very happy with these guys. The border patrol? Yeah. Uh, border patrol actually does like them. This one, the, some of them they so, don't. Some groups they don't yeah. like, but with, with the guys that I was with, um, you know, I think the U.S. Border Patrol, which is the entity, the government agency that, that patrols the border and, you know, guards our, our border, um, they also feel, as Naylor says, that they're in this David and Goliath battle with the cartels, you know, they being obviously David. And so they welcome any help they can get. Um, and so they, you know, as we see in the film, they work hand in hand. So they had the lines are blurred too. Yes. Okay. Over here, please. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you for your movie. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, I was wondering if you, after you finished the movie, went back to these people and showed it to them, or if you've gotten reactions from them, what they think? That was my question. So the doctor is still in jail. Um, there's been no due process, no trial. Um, most, his family, his supporters, most people believe that he's purely in jail uh, because the government wants to silence him. So as long as that continues, he'll remain in jail. Could be another week, another year, another month, you know, another 10 years, we don't know. 
so unfortunately, he's been unable to see the film. His whole family has seen the film. Um, you know, obviously, it's very difficult for them to watch it to see their father or their husband, um, you know, committing acts of uh, adultery. Um, the, you know, there's been a massive response all across Mexico. The film was released in theaters all across Mexico. Um, you know, I think in, there's many, many different Americas and there's many, many different Mexicos. Um, you know, and I think I went down there to do press and to, to, to be there for the release of the film. And there was not a dry eye in the room. And people really um, had a hard time grasping that this was their country. Um, you know, I think, again, this issue had been, it dominates the headlines in Mexico. Every single you know, paper has, has a story about something happening with cartel violence. You turn to the back of the paper and there's always dead bodies or bodies hanging from bridges or, or just really gruesome photos. And I think, but I don't think they ever get, have, have a face to that violence, have a face to that conflict. And so that's really what I wanted to do with this film was, was to try to enter the story but through in a very human an emotional way. Also, a lot of journalists get killed in Mexico all the time. They get killed all over the world, but Mexico is a place where journalists and people who report on these things get killed a lot, much more so than a it's lot, one of a the lot most of dangerous places, places for, yeah, journalists, for journalists. Yeah, it's, I think it's the top, the record, yeah. top yeah. four. Um, but the, when you talk about, I mean, a hundred thousand people killed since two thousand seven, that's 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 half of the number of people that are, that are killed in Syria. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, that's that was one of my goals, uh, you know, with. Releasing the film in the U.S. was, you know, we become obsessed with ISIS, um, and especially right now, you know, obviously it's it's quite poignant. Um, but there's this conflict happening right on our doorstep with the beheadings that, as well. Right. There's oh well, yeah, for decades it's been happening. I mean, in some ways more gruesome. Um, they just don't advertise it, um, and you know, there's so there's this war that's happening with all these people killed with our neighboring country, uh, and we're responsible for that war. We're funding that war through our consumption of drugs, um, you know, sending money south, sending guns south, and, um, you know, I really wanted to open people's eyes to this conflict. Well, you, you did, can I, yes, over there. Uh, Matthew, congrats on an amazing film. Two questions, one, did you ever think you were in too deep, and, uh, <laughs> and, and you got close to your characters, and? Did you ever feel that you'll betray them too? With Sicario, a fiction film being released, um, did any plays on fiction following non-fiction or thoughts on that? There's like a, a second, part of, second part of your first question that I didn't understand. Sorry, um, betraying, well, you got so close to the doctor and then filming him commit, or obviously being complicit in telling his adulterous story. That I betrayed him or that he... No, 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 that you're obviously, you're filming it and you had that control and right. you, you must have been conflicted. Yeah, you know, I think, um, to me, the, the beauty of film is to open people's eyes to a world that you've never seen before, to introduce you to characters that you might not ever get to meet. Um, you know, another thing I love about film is that there's so many different ways to make films. Um, there's so many styles. I personally am not attracted to films uh, where people go into a story with an agenda, 
where people go with it into a story trying to find characters or storylines that just reinforce what they believe in the world. Um, so I really, when I started both of these stories, when I started both of these relationships with the doctor and Naylor, I went in with, you know, open eyes. And I, you know, I told them both, you know, I, have, I, I don't have any goal that I want to achieve in telling this story. I want to let life unfold as it naturally would. And so, you know, obviously <laughs> life unfolded in a, in, a, in a very dramatic way, especially on the Mexican side. Um, and I didn't want to just put a nice, neat little box around these guys. You know, you're complex. I, I don't know you very well, but, um, you know, I'm complex. We're all complex human beings. And I really wanted to sort of revel in the complexity of, of humanity. And, you know, this is, a, this is a very murky world. And so I really wanted to embrace that and not try to, you know, have you walk out of this theater with like, okay, I understand this, this person or this conflict, you know, we have nothing else to talk about. I want you to walk out of here for, for days thinking about, was the doctor and, and good? And shoot ourselves right after watching here. Uh, I mean, now, the, other, the interesting question for all of us is, as we see all of these films and see how intractable the world is, how frail human beings are, as you said earlier, how many mistakes we make, is what can we do as citizens, whether it's about ISIS or about guns or about the narco state? And on the one hand, the complexity is so necessary. Just, it's not easy. It's not simple. There are no easy answers. But at a certain point, it also becomes possible that we say, what do I do? Can I do nothing but despair of the world we live in? And it's hard. And the numbers, you know, you say 100,000 killed there, 250,000 killed in Syria, 30,000 killed by gun violence in the United States every year. 30,000 murders, suicides, and accidents. Just gun violence in the U.S. And which statistic do you pay attention to? Which do I, I'm going to concern myself with ISIS. I'm going to concern myself with drugs. I'm going to concern myself with Mexico, with Syria, with Libya. It's so hard. Or do I concern myself with making sure the refugees get a home when they come from Syria here? And as we, we come to the films both to understand and complexify our views, but we also come hoping to identify the places where we can make a difference in our lives. And part of your message was very hopeful because here are two people on both sides of the border, we can make a difference. And yet in the end, the film says, well, yes and no, because life's complex and making a difference isn't so easy. So that's, that, that balance between understanding the complexity and difficulty in the world and feeling we can still control it and do something about it for ourselves and our children, that's a tough balance. And we're going to make it even more complex because there's a lot of other films to come, and that's why we have to stop. And thank you very much, Professor Barber, Matthew Heinemann. Thank, thank you for coming and come back.